We are picking up today where we left off this summer in the book of Romans, looking at the power of the gospel. So if you want to join me in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, hey, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Nate. If you're joining us online, great to have you with us. Um, so today, uh, we step back into Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we started this back in March. I'm sure you all remember, right? Um, but let me recap for a moment, because in the opening letter, in the first section, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And that word power, in the original language, is actually the same word from which we get our word dynamite. And it's actually only used in scripture two other times in relationship to God. The first, is a relationship to Jesus. He's actually called the power of God. And the second is here, in relationship to the word gospel, this good news. And, and when we started this last March, one of the questions that was being asked as we opened the letter was simply this. What might happen if the power of God found in this gospel worked its way into our lives? What might happen? That was the question that we started with. And today, we pick up in chapter 12, and this is a big pivot in the book. The first 11 chapters, you could put it this way, we're really answering one question. What is the gospel? What are we to believe about the gospel? But in chapter 12, it pivots and from here on out, it's essentially this. What does a life look like in light of that good news? Or in other words, what does this gospel look like in real life, in everyday moments? What's the response to it? And these two verses are incredible. Tim Keller puts it this way. These two verses are the summary of the whole of the Christian life. Think about that for a moment. So if you're here and this is your first time here and you're wondering what is this whole Christian life about, guess what? We're going to cover that today. <laughs> and if you've been a Christian for years and you've been going, wait, I'm still trying to figure this out, guess what? It's right here in these two verses. So there are three things Paul shows us here. He shows us the motive of the Christian life, the logical response of the Christian life, and the transformation that's available in the Christian life. So let me pray, and we'll see what God does with our time. Father, we give you thanks this morning um, that you don't leave us in the lurch. You meet us right where we are, and just pray today, whether we're walking in here in despair, in hopelessness, Father, whether we're hurting, whether we're lonely, whether we're discouraged, that you're not unaware of that, and that your word actually speaks to that. 
And I pray now as we step into this text that you would apply this to our lives. We might understand what this gospel might do in us. And you might work it out in the everyday. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, firstly, the mode of the Christian life. Let me ask this. Why do you do what you do? Think about that for a moment. That question of motive is so important. Why you do what you do is almost as important as what you do. You know, I mean, think of the single mom who works two jobs to put their kids through school, right? What a great motive. Think for a moment of, of, the, of the hospice nurse who walks next to families as they watch people leave this world and, and, and motivated by maybe in the past a moment where other hospice nurses walked with them in a season. Why you do what you do is as important as what you do. And Paul begins this section with the motive of the Christian life. In other words, why would you live this out? Why would you even attempt to obey what God commands? What's the motive? And Paul begins with this, Therefore, by the mercies of God. And this is shorthand. This is like a hyperlink. This is Paul saying, guess what I just wrote? The first 11 chapters. In light of all that I've written, that's the motive. And it's summed up in this the mercies of God. So recap, the first 11 chapters, Paul opens in Romans 1 and 2 into the first part of 3, showing that all people, religious or non-religious, have exchanged the one true God for another God. In other words, the starting point for everyone is in some way or another building your identity on something in creation, building your life around that, and worshiping and serving that rather than the one true God. And Paul gets to the end of chapter 3, speaking to both religious and non-religious people. And this is his summary in 319. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's remarkable there because it's, what, it's, what it's saying is that at the end of the day, you're going to come before God and you're going to be silent. There's going to be nothing you can bring that is going to, say, is going to make God say, you're good. We've all sinned. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 24 and 25, he begins to reveal that God has done something in Jesus. And this is what it says. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me just highlight the phrase, by his grace. Unmerited undeserved. By his grace, when it talks about the propitiation by his blood, it's saying that Jesus took the penalty for our sin. The righteous wrath of God was poured out on Jesus by his grace. When it says redemption, that's talking about a rescue. 
He's talking about God coming in Jesus and rescuing us from our sin by his grace. When it says justified, it's saying by his grace, there is a new verdict, a new status. If you're in him, you are declared righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. It's by his grace. When it says receive by faith, it's saying this is not something you achieve. This is not something you earn. This is something that you receive. You trust in Jesus. So when Paul begins to talk about the motive of the Christian life, he says, in view of God's mercy, he's saying this is the motive. It's gratefulness to God for his grace in Christ. It's a life of gratitude toward him, of what he's done. And there's nothing like this in any other religion out there. There's nothing like it. And for most of us, we operate functionally in a much different way. I just finished reading uh, the autobiography of Andre Agassi. Um, When I was growing up, he was my favorite tennis player. I had his shoes. I mean, I wanted to be him. He had great hair. I mean, he was just this, he was a kind of, he was a rebel, right? Which, I mean, right? That pretty much looks like me, right? Um, Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, there were moments, okay? Um, But the opening part of his autobiography, he says, he begins with this, I hate tennis. It's remarkable. You begin to understand as he goes through his life, he had an overbearing father who before he could even walk was beginning to train him to be the number one tennis player in the world. He he poured cement in the backyard to build a tennis court. He built a machine that would shoot thousands of balls at him day after day. And Andre, out of fear of his dad, Practice day after day after day. He would go to tournaments trying to please his dad. There would be tournaments where he would win, and his dad would come back with the comment of, well, you shouldn't have lost this game. It was motivated by one thing, fear. Each day was a day of getting up and not wanting to upset his dad. Every loss was met with disapproval. And even when he won a tournament, his first words, oftentimes from his dad, were not great job. And that's oftentimes what those on the outside of Christianity think it's about. But it's also what I'll say this, on the inside of the church, that's oftentimes how we function. We function thinking that it is our daily performance that gets us in good favor with God. You see, here's the deal. Every other religious system out there, in essence, is something like this. If you obey, if your performance is good enough, then God will accept you. But when Paul says, therefore, by the mercies of God, he's saying the motive is completely different. It's grace. And it means this. If you're in Christ, it means you are accepted in him through faith. And therefore, you obey. 
It's a completely different working of the heart. Paul is beginning to say this in light of God's mercy, in light of his mercy, in light of what he's done in Christ. For those in Christ, you are accepted. And the rest of your life is governed by the staggering mercy and grace found in Christ. And that is the motive. It's not what you do for God. It is what God has done for you. It's not trying to earn the hug. It's recognizing that you're in the hug of God, the embrace of God, because of what he's done in Christ, and from that living in light of that to please him. It's an assurance of his acceptance and belonging and living in light of that. Listen, I've been a Christian for over 20 years, and I'm still trying to work that out. Right? But Paul, as he begins to take this pivot of what it looks like to live in light of the gospel, do not forget this. It's this. It's you cannot earn God's acceptance. You cannot earn his, his smile. It's already been done in Christ. It's grace and grace alone. Which leads to the second part. Well, if that's what God's done, what's the logical response of the Christian life? And the next part of verse 1 says this, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Now, what's interesting about that term, spiritual, there's a number of different ways it can be translated. But the, in the original language, it's the word from which we get logic. And so one way to think about this is, Paul is saying this, if the gospel is true, if it is true that we were condemned and lost as sinners and God has come after us in the personal work of Jesus, what's the logical response to that? How should he respond to that? And Paul answers with a metaphor. Did you catch it? Paul answers with, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that sounds strange to us, but that original audience, that was not strange at all. They're very familiar with this. It's the metaphor, it's a picture of a worshiper going into a temple and making an offering. And there's a couple different offerings in the Old Testament, but the one that's, that, that's being referred to here is of a whole burnt offering. And this is where a person would take, a worshiper would take the most valuable animal from their flock, one that was without defect, and they would offer it on the altar entirely to God. It'd be all burned up, nothing left. And this offering showed one thing. It showed that all of what you had was at God's disposal. Everything. And so this is what Paul's saying. Paul is saying this, the logical response of the Christian in light of God's grace this is how Keller puts it, so helpful, is this, is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says, in any area of your life, and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of your life. 
Let me read that again because that is profound. The logical response in light of the grace of God is this, to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of your life and passively to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of your life. So, so check this. So, so a logical response to grace cannot be merely a compartment of your life squeezed into a few hours a week. It's got to permeate everything. If you're a nurse, if you're an implementer, if you're a student, if you're a business owner, if you're single, if you're married, if you're a parent, if you're a teenager, if you're a small group leader, if you're a church member, if you're a friend, the list goes on. It means in all those areas, this is your life. You are fully at God's disposal. It means when suffering enters into your life, when close relationships go sideways, when you are the receiver of racist remarks, when sickness enters into the life of the ones you love, when you study hard and you don't get the grade, when the career aspirations don't add up, even then, even then, you offer yourself fully at God's disposal. Aware that in times of suffering, those are the moments, honestly, in which God is oftentimes at work, most at work refining us. I remember years ago when a friend who had just had a really hard medical diagnosis write an email to, to, to one of my friends, say this, please pray for me that I will trust more and more with all of it. I want to love well and trust well and serve others well right now. I mean, forget about it. Like, that's it. And the language used here of presenting your body, it means this isn't a one-time thing, Right? It's the image of daily putting your life on the altar. Every day. Saying, God, I am fully at your disposal. Uh, let me ask you, as I've asked myself this week, how are you doing with that? <laughs> What areas of your life are you holding on to? Because the logic of grace, if you say it's all because of what Jesus has done for me, then the logical response, the only response, is all of it. Several years ago, there was a woman who was not a Christian yet, but was beginning to hear and understand this message of, of this radical grace found in Jesus. And, and she said something like this, if I am saved by my good works, there is a limit on what God can ask of me. There is a limit of what God can put me through because I have rights. I'm in control. But if this Jesus thing is true, that it's by grace and absolutely free and at infinite cost to himself, then there's no limit to what he can ask of me. 
And she gets it more than most of us. And see, here's where it hits, because if you're sitting there and you're saying, there's no way that I'm going to give God the reins of my life, or not this area, then here's the tension. Keller writes this, if what he did does not move you or break the ice over your soul, you must ask yourself if you have ever understood the gospel. The logical response of grace is making your whole life available daily offered to Jesus. Lastly, this passage shows us what that looks like. He shows us the transformation that's available. Look at verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice how Paul says this word, do not be conformed. Paul is saying that the world and its agenda, this age in which sin is still present, the world wants to squeeze you into its mold. It wants to shape your thinking. It wants to shape your behaving. It wants to shape your feeling and squeeze you into its mold. In other words, let me put it this way. One of the most popular things today in our culture is this. Freedom is the absence of all constraints. And I want to tell you right now, if you're not a Christian this morning, and most of us, even if we are, we we somehow believe that, but the world has an agenda. You are not free. That statement, that freedom is the absence of all constraints, that's another constraint. Paul's saying you're not free. But there's a way to be free. He says, but be transformed. And that's interesting. Paul could have said, do not be conformed to the world, but be conformed to, you know, God's ways. But he says to be transformed. And it's the same word we get, the word metamorphosis. Think about how that applies to a caterpillar, right? Becoming a butterfly. (laughs) Or a tadpole becoming a frog. It's this completely change of nature. And do you hear what's happening there? Paul is saying this, that God's will is not constraining. It's not merely a veneer of rules. It's actually deep inner transformation that actually leads you to the way you were designed to live, to experience life. In other words, this is your true self. Your true self is found in him and in his ways and in his life. Not conformed, but transformed. You're thinking, you're behaving, you're believing, you're feeling everything. And the whole of the Christian life is figuring that out. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And Paul says, This process all happens by the renewing of your mind. So what does that mean? How how does this process happen? Let me say two things. Firstly, this, at the minimum, it involves our thinking. 
you know, Paul would write in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, you want Scripture to shape you. You want it to form you. Do a study sometime over the life of Jesus. It is remarkable. It is profound how many times he is pricked. He just bleeds Scripture. He's just quoting Old Testament. It's over and over and over again. His life was shaped by the Word of God. It's nothing less than that. It's passages that reveal God's character, His promises, and His will. Listen, it's the only way in the midst of when you face suffering, you're going to be able to face it and not be shaped and molded into a person that's just bitter and hard and angry and done with. Right? just is. You have to be shaped by Scripture. But it's also more than that. The other time in the New Testament where the word transformed is used is in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And listen to what Paul says. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There's much that could be said here, but I'll put it this way. When Paul's talking about this being transformed and seeing Jesus, it's this idea to be, as one commenter put it, to be inflamed with the truth of who Christ is. It's having your imagination captured by Christ and what he's done. So let me give you one example that just so clearly shows it. It comes from the book of Ephesians, and Paul writes this. And think about this. If you're dealing with a difficult relationship, this is the area where you need to soak in. Okay, but listen to what Paul does. He says this in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander put away from you, along all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice God's will, the abundant life in the midst of difficult relationships. It involves our hearts. It involves our words. From a hard heart to a soft heart. And this, check this. This is not going to be a one-time thing. You won't make a one-time decision. I'm going to walk this way today. It's going to be daily waking up and putting bitterness and wrath and anger and these sort of things and saying, this is not of God. But rather, I'm called to be kind and tender-hearted, and that's going to take prayer. And forgiving one another. And let me say this, forgiveness is usually, it's not a one-time thing. It's a daily waking up and taking the bitterness and thoughts you have and saying, no, I'm, again. But then check this, at the end, it says, as God in Christ forgave you. What's he doing? Paul's showing them, here's what Christ has done for you. Here's the glory. Be wowed by that and how he has been towards you. He could have been bitter. He could have been angry. He could have been malicious towards you, but he's been kind. He's been tenderhearted. You've got to be wowed by the gospel. You've got to be in awe of it. You've got to be caught up in it. So the summary of the whole of the Christian life is the motive is the motive's gratefulness to God for his grace in Christ. The logical response is everything all of who you are in any situation. And thirdly, the way it gets worked out, it's being transformed, not conformed, but transformed through Scripture and our imaginations being captured by the wonderful work of Christ and who He is.
That's why we show up here every Sunday in some sense, right? I want to see something new. I want to be reminded again of who God is and what he's done for me in Christ. Let me offer a few thoughts. Because I know there's plenty of places you could be here this morning receiving this. Firstly, some of you this morning, you hear this and you're discouraged. Maybe you feel stagnant. Maybe you come back week after week and it's the same you, right? It's the same struggles. Am I changing? Is anything happening here? Martin Luther had this great quote, and he, he's trying to remind us that this is a process. This is a process. He said this, this life is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. It's a process. You know, I say this a lot, but like, I'm, I mean, if I look back like five years ago, like I am not the same man. Now, if I think back five years before that, I'm not the same man. But if I like think of myself next week, I'm the same man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just true. It's the same struggles. But here's what's important. Listen, I'm not concerned at all today about the pace of your growth. Let me say it that way. It's not the pace that you should ask about. Some of you are crawling, and that's all you can do right now, and that's okay. The question is the direction. Which way are you heading? Are you heading toward him, or are you heading away from him? See, that's the main question. Which way are you heading? And listen, to head toward him, this is what it means. It means this, if you're stagnant or you're discouraged, it means you need to set your gaze on the mercy of God in Christ. It might be finding a particular passage of Scripture that depicts it in a way that you are awed and wowed by, but you stick your head in there daily thinking on it. Or it might be a worship song that captures the beauty of the gospel, and that's what's on replay. It's going to mean joining weekly in rhythms of worship in the city group life and a community of others who are working it out and are helping you work it out. In short, you're just trying to put yourself in a place where you can have your heart and your mind inflamed with the work of Christ. Then secondly and lastly, I'll say this. Some of you are divided and you're skeptical. Some of you have one foot in the world and one foot in with Christ. Or perhaps you're just here exploring what Christianity is all about. And maybe the idea of the whole of the Christian life in the midst of all the options out there, it seems drab, it seems hard, it seems too unrealistic, too constraining. Let me offer you one final thought. There's a, a film that came out a number of years ago called Three Seasons, and it's a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the stories is about Hai. He's a cyclo driver, and Lan, who's a beautiful prostitute. And both of them have deep, unfulfilled desires. And Hai is in love with Lan. And Lan lives in grinding poverty. And she longs to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. 
And she hopes that the money she makes will somehow give her the means of escape. But instead, week after week, it just brutalizes and enslaves her. But then High enters a contest, a cyclo contest, and he wins the top prize. And in the movie, when he brings, <laughs> with the money he brings Lon to the hotel, he pays for the night, he pays for the fee, and everyone watching thinks that what's going to happen next is a nice steamy scene. But you know what happens next? He tells her he just wants to watch her fall asleep. And Keller writes this, instead of using his power and wealth to have sex with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night in a normal world to fulfill her desire to belong. Lon finds such grace deeply troubling at first, thinking that Han has done this to control her. But when it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible for her to return to her former life. Listen, if you're divided, if you're skeptical, why does this story grab us? Because we long for those kind of relationships, ones where we're not exploited. One in which we know entirely possible the person is for us. And listen, that story is fictional. But if the gospel is true, do you realize what that means? It means the God of the universe has come down in the person and work of Jesus. And how has he used his power? He's used his power to serve us, to give his life for us, and even though we didn't deserve any of it. And let me tell you what, that's the power of the gospel. That can transform anyone. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we praise you for the knowledge that your purposes in our lives are bound up in you. We feel dark at times. The self-centeredness oftentimes seems so indestructible. We feel so shaped by this world. And Lord, we pray that you may yet again capture us by your mercy. Lord, help us where we are in light of this to put all of ourselves at your disposal as a living sacrifice. And we ask this in your powerful name. Amen.